When I was a freshman in college, I was invited by an upperclassman who I had met the first week of school to meet for coffee in between class one day. We sat outside on the main mall of the University of Texas campus and we chatted casually on a park bench seated underneath a shade tree as we watched thousands of students scurry past with their backpacks on their way to and from class. I remember my brand new acquaintance, I thought new friend. She had short dark hair and a very sweet smile. And so, smiling at me, she asked me a pushy and intrusive question. Have you been saved? Well, I must have hesitated for too long because she went a little further then and said, please tell me the exact moment in which you were saved. And I remember feeling so bummed because she hadn't asked me for coffee to try to get to know a new friend. She was trying to out find out if I was going to heaven after I died, because for her, salvation meant that if you accepted Jesus as your Lord, that then your soul would go to heaven when you died. It was for her future tense, and it was very individual and personal. And she was surmising, I don't know what it was about me that made her think I wasn't saved, but she was surmising that if I wasn't yet saved, that she could save me there on the mall on the main campus of the university, and this would assure her personal entrance into heaven because she had saved me. So that's how that started. Well, salvation, we all know, is a big and heavy word, and there is no way to define it in one campus conversation or in one short sermon on a Sunday. In some ways, every time we gather at the church, every sermon we hear, it's about salvation. We come here to ponder the reality of salvation for our lives. So today, in our quest to claim the vocabulary of our shared faith, I'd like for us to look at just one story in the Bible to see how it is that salvation unfolds in real life for a particular person named Zacchaeus. Jesus, on that day, was walking toward Jerusalem. His teaching and his preaching, his healing and his miracles, all that is just about wrapped up and he has turned to make his way towards Jerusalem, where he will face the cross. And on his way to Jerusalem, he passes through this little town called Jericho. And when he enters the town, the crowds line the streets, and they begin pushing and shoving in those dusty streets, gathering shoulder to shoulder as, this, as if this was somehow the Macy's Day Parade, and you dare not miss it as it passed through. And Zacchaeus is too short to see. And besides, no one wants to make way with their shoulders for Zacchaeus to elbow through because Zacchaeus is despised in Jericho. As the chief tax collector, he has already cheated everyone in town, robbed them blind by taking some money from them and giving it to Rome and taking double that amount and keeping that for himself so that he can build a new hot tub, a new sauna, and a new swimming pool in his own backyard. And they resent Zacchaeus 
because while he dines on filet mignon, they slice off a small piece of spam. Zacchaeus, though, feels some kind of urgency to see this phenomenal healer and teacher that everyone's been talking about. And so Zacchaeus tries to outsmart the rest of them by running way up ahead of the crowds, climbing up in a sycamore tree and waiting for Jesus to pass. And with this parade that Jesus is walking in, reaches that sycamore tree, Jesus stops, looks up in the tree, and there, where you might expect a child to climb up in the tree, he sees a man wearing a long, beautiful purple robe with gold fringe. And Jesus shocks everyone when he says, Zacchaeus, hurry up, come on down. I'm coming to your house for dinner. So Zacchaeus scurries down the tree and he runs home and he sets out the placemats and he chills the wine and he fires up the barbecue grill and the crowds were aghast. They were offended. They grumbled. You know, kind of like you and I would grumble if Jesus came to Kansas City and instead of meeting with the city council and the mayor and all the local clergy leaders, Jesus dined at the home of the drug dealers or the head of the mafia. He has gone to be the guest of a sinner, they said. But at the dinner table in the home of Zacchaeus, as Zacchaeus passed the lamb chops over to Jesus, Zacchaeus looked into the face of Jesus and said, I promise, never again will I defraud anyone of anything and to make up for all my former lying and cheating and hurting of other people, I'm now today going to give half of my 401k to charity. And Jesus said, today, salvation has come to your house. Now, I think this story tells us two things about salvation. One, salvation is now, today. Today, salvation has come, says Jesus. And then this story also tells us that salvation is communal, not just personal, not private, not individual. Salvation has come, says Jesus, to this house, which would have included the servants of Zacchaeus, the family members of Zacchaeus, the neighbors of Zacchaeus, the community of Zacchaeus, all of them have new life today, a life different from the one that they had yesterday. In the novel Where the Crawdads Sing by Delia Owens, there's a little girl growing up alone, abandoned in the swamps of North Carolina. One day, a little boy who had been her childhood friend leaves her a note on a tree stump outside of her little shack there in the swamps. And then he comes back and asks her, did you get my note? Yes, she said. What'd you think? She said, I can't read. And so he comes to her house and teaches her to read. The one day that she went to school to try to learn to read, all the children made fun of her and they called her the swamp girl 
And so now here is this friend who is teaching her to read, and that ability to read changes her life. It saves her. Salvation comes to her now through the kindness and the generosity of this childhood friend. For Zacchaeus, salvation came with a simple dinner party, one dinner party, and he was transformed. Jesus came to be with him, and he somehow became a new man, not a man who was known for his lying and cheating ways, not a man who was known for his manipulation and his callousness, but a man who is now known for his generosity, his fairness, his kindness. His heart was changed. His goals became reoriented. Zacchaeus, he was saved from himself, for it is no longer about how much more he can get. It is now about how much kindness and grace he can share with others. God's love changed him in the here and in the now. If salvation is not just about what happens after we die, but is also about what happens in the here and now, what might that look like for you and for me? If you're tired or anxious or burned out from your job, what would salvation look like for you today? If you're tossing and turning at night because your teenager has threatened suicide, what does salvation look like for you today? If you're caring for a parent who has Alzheimer's and is slowly being robbed of dignity, what does salvation look like for you as the caregiver today? If your bank account is dwindling and you cannot live the life that you had dreamed about, what does salvation look like for you today? The word salvation means to heal or to make whole. Or in the Hebrew Bible, it meant a wide place. Jesus offers Zacchaeus and all of us a wholeness, a wide, expansive place where God comes into our home to dwell with us, to transform us, to make us new. Or as Frederick Buechner put it, you do not love God tit for tat so that God will save you. To love God is to be saved. And then there's this second aspect of salvation revealed in Jesus' encounter with Zacchaeus. And it is this, that salvation is not just for Zacchaeus. It is not just for you. It is not just for me. It is for us. Salvation, says Jesus, has come to your house, to a community. You know, modern psychology has taught us if the, that if there's an alcoholic in the family, then the whole family system will suffer and be profoundly wounded. And if one person has the courage to change and heal, then the whole system will be made new. And Jesus says something similar to Zacchaeus, that today, Zacchaeus, the people who despised you, they no, they no longer do. Things have been rearranged. The system of injustice, where tax collectors run a Ponzi-like scheme to keep the poor poor and the rich rich, all of that has now been upended. Today, fairness and justice prevails because God's love saves us. Us, meaning churches and neighborhoods and towns 
and nations and all people who dare to sit at table with Jesus and feast on God's unconditional love so that we too are transformed. Back in May when we were in Israel, Mike took us to the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem. I think I mentioned to you before that around the Holocaust Museum, there are these trees that were planted specifically to help us remember. They are called the Trees of the Righteous, and each tree has a nameplate at the base of it, and it is a tree to remind us of one individual person who saved the Jews. Now, on that particular day, I was determined I was not going to get drawn into the pain and the agony that one inevitably experiences while visiting the Holocaust Museum. I have visited the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. on numerous occasions, spending hours there weeping and learning. And so I tried to seal off my heart. I tried to pull back and stay at a distance, but near the end of the exhibit, as I was breezing through, kind of waiting for the group, one story caught my attention. You see, one of those trees planted there is not named for a person, but for a nation. Denmark, it says at the base of that tree, because Denmark worked together to save the Jews. A German informant let the government of Denmark know that the Jews of Denmark were about to be deported. So the nation conspired together to gather up all 7,200 Jews and 800 family members to get them safely to the border and hidden away in Sweden before the roundup to send them to the concentration camps began. Salvation was for the whole house, not just a few. God saves us, not one of us at the expense of another, but all of us, God loves humanity. God keeps us, just as we might save a precious photograph or some money or a treasured memento because it is somehow precious to us. We are precious to God, and so God saves us. Two weeks ago, we had the first Amon family reunion since my father-in-law died back in March. My mother-in-law passed away six years ago, and so this would be our first family reunion without our patriarch and our matriarch. At the opening dinner, when the hot dogs and the bratwurst were ready, we all gathered together in the common room and someone said, it's time to pray, and typically this would have been the moment when Grandpa, who was also a pastor, would have said grace. But he was absent, and so we all cried, and it was prayer enough. But then my husband mumbled through a prayer, and we ate the hot dogs, and all throughout the weekend, as we went swimming and boating, we didn't talk too much about our missing matriarch and patriarch, but it was obvious that things were not the same. And so on the last night, we sat around the bonfire. It was spontaneous, 
Some of the kids were roasting marshmallows. Individual groups were seated around on logs, just talking and visiting. And then we decided, all 30-something of us, to play charades. And we began laughing so hard at charades that the laughter turned into tears. And you know, it was as if we had been gathered up by a love so much greater than the love that any single one of us had brought there, somehow held in God's eternal love, a love that we don't have to wait for in the future, but which comes to all of us now. What do you suppose we should call that? <laughs>